beginning in verse 13. And uh, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. Speaking of the law, which he's just said in verse 12, is holy. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This will be our fourth message on these verses. Um, as I was saying a while ago, uh, next Sunday, I, I don't really want to go back and start our series on Joseph next Sunday because in the next two Sundays uh, we have the Romania trip and we're going to have some, some guest preachers with us and Merle's going to be continuing his study of the Psalms with us. And So uh, I'm not sure where we'll go next Sunday, but uh, uh, we'll be looking at that. So you pray for me this week as I, I wrestle with uh, what to bring to you uh, next Sunday. Uh, but we will uh, very soon return to the book of Genesis and pick up our study there and end that with the life of Joseph. I expect that to take us into uh, the beginning of 2013, maybe into February. Um, the Lord's sovereign over all those things. And then we will come back to Romans and we will hit the great eight. And I want you to know that probably one of the main reasons we started preaching through the book of Romans was to have the opportunity to just live in Romans chapter 8. And so uh, I am already very just, just looking forward. I'm anxious. I'm eager to be there. And uh, uh, what we're going to see in Joseph's life is just going to be preparing us for it because Joseph and Romans 8 just go together so well. And uh, so I hope that you're eager for those things and looking forward to those things. Uh, I certainly am. But we do have a little work left to do here in Romans 7. And right now, we're thinking about this doctrine of indwelling sin. We're thinking about this reality that sin remains an active force even in the life of a believer, seeking to compel the Christian to think, speak, act in ways that are contrary to our God. 
This morning we saw the reality of indwelling sin, that both the Bible and our own experience shows us that this this natural man, this flesh, this sinful nature, this indwelling sin, it, it lives within us. We also saw something of the essence of this indwelling sin. That, that it is a powerful force within us remaining from before our conversion that compels us to do the opposite of the will of God. Well, tonight we're going to uh, look at two more headings. The power of indwelling sin and the remedy for indwelling sin. So let's look first at the power of indwelling sin. And the power that we are speaking of is, is driven by the deep hatred that our flesh, our old man, still has towards God. If you remember from back when we were in Romans 5, the natural man has made himself an enemy of God. We'll see in Romans 8 that the natural man has hostility towards God. As Christians, we have been made new, but there is still something of that natural man in us. Uh, Deep down, we now love God at the core of who we are. We've changed, but there is still that fleshly part of us that that despises God and hates God with a passion. This morning, I mentioned Chris Lungard's book, The Enemy Within. And in that book, he illustrates the hatred that our flesh has towards God by pointing to one of my favorite novels, which is Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Um, In in that book, I hope you've read it, many of you I, I would assume have, Uh, In that book, we read of Captain Ahab and his obsession to kill the great white whale. Uh, Melville chose for Moby Dick, the whale, to be a great white whale on purpose. Uh, The whale in that book represents all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is pure. And wicked Ahab, who takes his name from the wicked king of the Old Testament, he is a true picture of our flesh. And the way our flesh desires to conquer the unconquerable, namely God himself. Our flesh wants to remove God from his throne. Our God wants to, I mean, our our flesh wants to strike God through with a spear, so to speak. So Ahab cries out in Moby Dick, Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying, unconquerable well. To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. It's the way our fleshly nature speaks towards God. Hatred of God. Refusal to submit to God. This is the impetus that drives indwelling sin. And there can be no doubt that even in a born-again believer, indwelling sin can be very powerful. Its compulsions can be very forceful. In these verses, Paul speaks as a man in agony, a man in anguish, a man wrestling and wrestling with this enemy, but unable to actually take it down for good. In particular, Paul notes two aspects of indwelling sin's power. Two aspects of indwelling sin's power. First, indwelling sin has the power to lead us into doing what we do not want to do. Look at these statements that Paul makes. Verse 15. Verse 15. I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 23. 
I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So at the core of who Paul is, he is a regenerated, he is a born-again man. He does not want to sin. He wants to live a life that's pleasing to God. He wants to live a life of obedience. And yet indwelling sin within him keeps taking him captive and leading him into doing the very things he hates. Does that sound familiar? Can you relate at all to that? Have you ever vowed in your heart that you would never, ever, ever do something again only to find yourself having committed that same sin just a little bit later? Have you ever experienced those moments of crying out to God, Oh God, how did I wind up here again? Why can't I stop sinning like this? I really do love Christ. I really do trust Christ. And yet I still feel so much like a slave. Do not underestimate the power of indwelling sin in your heart. It can be very subtle. It can woo you gently. Or it can come upon you like a tornado with such pressure that that you feel you must sin. I'm sure we've all had that experience of having some hurtful thought come into our minds And though we know we shouldn't say it, we know we should keep our mouth closed, we know we should not open our lips and say that thing, suddenly we hear ourselves blurting it out. The moment we say it, we're like, why did I do that? I knew I shouldn't have done that. How powerful is indwelling sin? It can lead even the godliest men and women in this life to fall into terrible sins. This morning, we mentioned David and the sin he committed with Bathsheba and ultimately the murder of Uriah. David had been walking with God for decades. David had been used by God in performing many mighty works. David had seen God's faithfulness to him again and again. David knew sweet communion with God. David knew what it was to have an intimacy with God that is rare in this world. David had deep feelings of real love for God. And David was a man of truth, a man of integrity, a man of godliness. And so if indwelling sin in his life could entrap him in such a great sin as as adultery and murder, well, then do we really think that we're not going to fare much better hadn't we all better be on our guard? Indwelling sin has the power to, to compel us strongly into doing what we ought not to do. But then second, indwelling sin has the power to prevent us from doing the good that we ought to do. This is the opposite side. Indwelling sin pushes us towards sin, but indwelling sin also pushes to keep us from obedience. So Paul says in verse 15, Verse 15, I do not do what I want. Or verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want. So indwelling sin not only leads us into sins of commission, sins that we actually commit, but indwelling sin leads us into sins of omission. 
Our flesh finds ways of prohibiting us from doing the very things we know we ought to be doing, the very things that deep down we really want to do. Spurgeon said that we are like a chariot seeking to go the right way, but indwelling sin keeps clogging up the wheels to keep us from moving. We might use the illustration of a ship. Here we are wanting to to sail for God's glory, but indwelling sin is an anchor stuck in the ground trying to keep us from making progress. Where do we see this more evident than in our prayer lives? I touched on this this morning. We set a time apart, we set apart a time to pray. And we know that prayer is a great privilege purchased for us by Christ. We get to speak to the God who created the universe. We get to speak to the Most High. He wants to hear from us. We can take our burdens and cast them upon God. There's, is there any higher privilege in the world than to be able to commune with God Himself? And so we get on our knees in our place of prayer and we're ready to pray. And what happens? If you're anything like me, almost immediately the flesh begins to wage war, right? And dwelling sin does everything it can to keep me from praying. Suddenly a thousand thoughts flood my mind, seeking to distract me, seeking to to pressure me away from communing with God. Deep down, we want to pray, but in that moment, we sometimes find sin trying to take away our very ability clouding up our minds with so many other thoughts and distractions that we can't even think straight to pray? Or what about those moments of fellowship that we know we ought to be embracing? There are sick brothers and sisters in Christ who would be encouraged by our visiting them. There are visitors who attend our church who we want to make an effort to show genuine love and concern for. There are all these members of our church whom we've committed to care for, to encourage, to admonish, and to serve. Is it not amazing? Maybe this is just my experience, but you see, it's amazing to me how the moment we begin to consider visiting someone on a weeknight, or making a phone call, or having people over in our homes, almost instantly the flesh begins to wage war with every reason in the world why we shouldn't do it, don't have time to do it, can't make it happen. Our soul begins to feel a moment of discomfort. Don't you know this means extra burden for you? Don't you know this means less time for you to relax? You've had a busy day. Deep down, you want to be this kind of person. I know you do. You're a Christian. Deep down, you want to imitate your God. Deep down, you want to be like your Savior. But the flesh does everything it can to hold you back on and on we could go with with examples of of the power of indwelling sin. It is a volcano within us, sometimes quiet, sometimes exploding, but it's always full of wicked desires. Now here's the implication. If this is true, and it is, whatever your views on Romans 7, we could show this from other passages, this is true. See the utter need for us to pray and call out to God for help. See our utter dependence upon God shown to us. Our only hope in this battle is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. Remember, Christian, 
Indwelling sin is not the only thing that dwells in you. The Spirit of God Himself dwells in you and produces good desires. The Spirit is the one who is gradually destroying indwelling sin in your life. But this work that God is doing of making you holy, this work that God has done of sanctifying you, this work that God is doing of killing indwelling sin in your life, God does as a response to the prayers of His people. God has appointed it so that almost everything He does, He does as a response to the prayers of His people. It is as we humble ourselves It is as we see our great need for His help. It is as we plead for His mercy that He comes and rescues us and brings real aid. As powerful as your flesh is and as mighty as its temptations can be upon your soul, God has promised that He will be faithful. He will provide a way of escape. You will not be tempted beyond what you can bear if you are looking to Him for help. We should be praying that God would give us a distaste for all sin. Indwelling sin knows what buttons to push. Indwelling sin knows what sins you still secretly delight in. So we need to be on our faces, asking that God would give us a hatred for every sin, for all sin. We should be asking for God to make it clear to our minds and our consciences that every sin is against Him. Every sin is harmful to our souls. Every sin is counterproductive to His mission and the good of others. We should be daily on our knees praying that God would intensify His sanctifying work in us. We should ask that the Holy Spirit would be strong in us, that the flesh would be weak in us and growing weaker every moment. We should pray that God would help us to see the the practical steps we need to take in obedience to Him, to weaken whatever sin and dwelling sin is pointing us to and trying to get us caught up in. Friends, when we look honestly at the power of indwelling sin, we see that it really is a Goliath. We are a little David. But like David, we ought to find ourselves depending completely upon God and God alone for help. If we seek to kill sin in our lives by using external techniques, by using some five-step plan, by attacking that sin in our own strength, we're going to get pummeled. But if we fight in faith, we will see that our God is strong. He will glorify Himself as He becomes not only a Savior from the penalty of sin, but a Savior from the very power and presence of sin in our lives. When we are the most humble, when we have the lowest view of our own strength, when we completely rely on God and God alone, that is when we are strongest and best able to fight. Indwelling sin is more than a match for us, but it is no match for the Spirit of God who is at work in our souls. It is absolutely no accident that if you go back and look through John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, all about killing sin, almost every piece of counsel he gives goes back to prayer. In prayer, we are to search our own hearts to be sure that we are true believers. The Spirit of God must give us that sweet assurance. 
And then in prayer, we're to search out what shape sin is taking in our lives. In prayer, we are to ask God to remind us of the danger and deadly nature of sin, causing the hatred of sin to rise up in our hearts. In prayer, we're to ask God to, to, I'm sorry, in prayer, we're to run again and again to Jesus Christ for fresh forgiveness, to remind ourselves that we are safe and justified in Him. In prayer, we're to consider the opportunities that indwelling sin is taking advantage of to lure us into wicked thoughts, words, or deeds. We are to live as people of prayer. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to ask God to help us be watchful, sober-minded, alert. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. Right? This armor that we're to put on as we fight evil in our lives and in this world. And in verse 18, after Paul has described each piece of armor, and he's ended with that one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Paul then ends that whole description of the armor of God with this. Be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. You see, on, on top of every piece of weaponry that we use to fight sin in our lives, we must have prayer. We must be constantly supplicating, asking God for help. And we're to do this not just for ourselves, but as we talked about this morning, we're in this together. We are to be supplicating for one another's. Or not one another. Paul told the Christians in Ephesus, pray for me too. He didn't pretend to be a, a, a super spiritual Christian that suddenly didn't need these prayers. No, even the great Apostle Paul said, include me in your prayers as we think about fighting evil in our lives and in this world. So Mount Hermon, in the face of the power of indwelling sin, let us call out on God for grace for ourselves and for one another. Now, the fourth and final heading is the remedy for indwelling sin. The remedy for indwelling sin. We could say a great deal about ways to fight sin in our lives right here, right now. I just talked about the importance of prayer. I couldn't elevate that enough. I mean, it's so important. Uh, we spent three messages in Romans 6, 12 through 14 talking about that battle with sin and, and the practical ways that the Bible teaches us to fight sin. In this passage, however, Paul doesn't point us to the remedy for right here, right now. Rather, Paul points us to the remedy that is coming, the ultimate remedy. Paul speaks to us about how it is that one day we will be made free from indwelling sin altogether. Today we live as a divided people, fundamentally loving God, longing for Him, but also finding in ourselves this other power at work. We're wretched in that sense. But this wretchedness that we now experience is temporary. So look back again at how Paul ends this. Look at verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
So Paul ends there with the present reality of his life. In his mind, he serves the law of God. He serves the will of God. But there is also in him that flesh, that old man, that indwelling sin, which serves the law of sin, the will of sin. But what is his hope in this life? What keeps him from despair? What allows Paul to overflow in joy and gratitude and peace, even in the midst of this battle? It is his anticipation that soon Christ will deliver him once and for all from this battle. Who will deliver him from this body of death? It will be God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's two questions to ask that I think may be helpful. And the first is this. Are we to view our bodies as inherently evil? Are we to view these bodies as inherently evil? After all, Paul does say, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he's been using this word flesh to speak of that sinful part of him. So is it the body that's the sinful part of him? Could it be that we should follow the ancient Greeks who viewed our souls, our spirits, as inherently good and the material world, including our physical bodies, as inherently evil? I'm a good soul trapped in an evil body. Well, no, that's not the way the Bible talks. It is God who designed the human body. It is God who fashioned Adam from dust and who created Eve from Adam. And God pronounced man, both soul and body, as very good in the beginning. Now, our bodies, like our souls, have been affected by the fall. This is why we age. This is why we get wrinkles. This is why our bones weaken and medical conditions arise. This is why we have babies who are born blind or deaf or mute. Sin has taken its toll even on the physical world, including these bodies of ours. But we must never picture ourselves as souls who have now been made righteous and holy, trapped inside bodies that are wicked. We must never think that if I could just be free from this body, I wouldn't sin the way I do. No, the flesh that we fight against includes something of our spirits and not just our bodies. The reason we will be perfectly holy the moment we breathe our last is not because our souls leave our bodies, but because Christ makes our souls perfectly holy in that moment. Were it not for Christ perfecting our souls at death, the fact that we had left our bodies would make no difference at all. I say this because I don't want you to fall into a heresy that has been in the Christian church at various times in which Christians begin to have a very negative view of the body that God has given them. God has given you your body. It is to be used for God's glory. It is to be held in high esteem. And just as your soul will be perfected at death, so we're told that there will be a glorious resurrection day when your body will be perfected as well and will be a thing of great honor. I would submit to you that we ought not to be the kind of people who cremate our dead and treat the body as something to be gotten rid of. Rather, like Paul, we are to view the dead Christian body as asleep. 
you ever notice, that's how he refers to Christians who have died. They are asleep. And we're waiting for the day when that body will be raised, will be perfected, will be rejoined to our spirits. We put the human body into, a, into the ground like a seed, but we expect it to come forth again and in a more glorious form. Remember, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 6 that the Lord is for the body and the body for the Lord. That we have been bought with a price and that we are to glorify God with our bodies. So if that's true and the body is not inherently evil, why does Paul say he longs to be free from this body of death? Well, because death does still indeed reign in these bodies of ours. We are new creation souls, born-again Christians. We are new creation souls in old creation bodies. Our souls are not yet perfect. The dominating force of our souls has changed. But our souls are not yet perfect. But our souls are changing. And our souls are becoming holy. Not so with our bodies. Our souls are now breaking free from the curse through Christ slowly, gradually. Our bodies are not. Right now, my body is not being sanctified. My soul is. My body's falling apart slowly. Yours is, is too, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Okay. Paul has been teaching us in chapters 6 and 7 that these old creation bodies often become powerful instruments in the grip of indwelling sin so that you might be trying to fight some sin in your life, and yet your body still has certain impulses towards sin that make the battle even harder. Maybe you're trying to overcome an addiction to fast food, and yet every time you pass a McDonald's, your mouth begins to water. Your own physical nature begins to, to work against you. It will not always be like this, but for now it is like this, and the remedy is for Christ to deliver your soul through death from this body for a time. So how should you view your body? Well, in the beginning, your body was good, and it will be good again. And by grace, you can use your body for good even now. But in general, your body today is a body of death, something under the curse something that is still plagued with sinful impulses that play right into the hands of indwelling sin in your heart. And so long for the day when your body, like your soul, will be made new. And then here's the second question. We'll end with this. What kind of deliverance was Paul looking forward to? I mean, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? What kind of deliverance is he talking about? Well, I think it's obvious. I think Paul was speaking of death. I think he's looking forward to the day when he will depart this body and go to be with Christ, awaiting the day of resurrection. We know that Paul was looking forward to death. He wrote to the Philippians from prison, not knowing whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die. And he told them in Philippians 1, 23-24, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So at that point in his life, Paul clearly had a longing for the day when he would depart his body and be with Christ. And the implication for us is this, that as Christians, we too ought to look forward to that day and to find strength there. 
Do you see how weird it is to be a Christian? Unlike the rest of the world, we are to look forward to our deaths. The day of our death is the day we enter paradise. Our funeral is the funeral of all our sorrows, the funeral of all our miseries. Now, we're to never crave death in a suicidal way. To take life is God's prerogative. But we ought to be able to say with Paul that we too long for the day when we will be free from this world, free from this battle, in the presence of God Himself. And knowing that that day is coming, knowing that that day is ahead of us, we should be able to draw strength for the battle today. Knowing that we won't have to fight forever, Knowing that glory awaits us is powerful motivation to fight hard and to fight well, to not grow weary. So double your resolve to to pursue purity and to be as useful as you can to the Lord Jesus in this life. Put into practice the the defense of self-denial and the offense of happy submission to God. And do so knowing that while this battle may seem long right now, it will seem like a drop in the bucket next to eternity. Paul knew what it was to experience this battle. We've heard his own testimony there at the end of Romans 7. Paul knew the anguish of this battle. But Paul was not a morbid, frustrated, or depressed man. Read the book of Philippians. Listen to Paul just overflow with joy and peace and especially gratitude. And we say, Paul, how can you who knew this anguish, how can you who knew this great battle with sin, how can you be bubbling over with joy? Answer, he knew how this battle would end. He knew that this fight was not forever and he knew that he did not fight alone. Paul's joy was in Jesus Christ. His life revolved around Christ. So friends, don't leave tonight saddened because indwelling sin is real or because indwelling sin is powerful. Leave tonight encouraged that one day it will lie dead at your feet, that Christ will have worked His mighty salvation in you. Leave encouraged that your indwelling sin is an opportunity for Jesus to show off just how powerful, righteous, and compassionate He is as He delivers you from it. Like Israel being saved from Egypt, the Red Sea being split in two, so you too will cross the river of death and you will be ultimately and forever saved from the power and presence of sin. And just as Israel sang on the other side of the river, the great song of salvation to God, so you and I will sing forever and ever and ever of the great salvation that Jesus Christ has worked in our lives. So long for that day. Rest in Christ and fight hard. Amen?